0: Welcome to Up in the Sky, aviation and travel podcast. Stay tuned for up-to-date aviation and travel news, followed by this week's topic of discussion. Now here's your host, Ebony J. And welcome to Up in the Sky Aviation and Travel Podcast with me, Ebony J. I hope you're doing really well this week. Like I said last week, this episode is being released a day late because on the Wednesday, which was yesterday, I had to attend a training course for my job. So that went really well. So I just decided to do this on the Thursday instead of the Wednesday and record it a day later. And I'm feeling a bit better this week. Last week I was down with the flu and my voice was all... I don't know what my voice was last week but I was a bit ill but feeling a lot better this week but enough of that and uh, let's just jump into to the most recent aviation and travel news So first up in the news, and some news from the UK this week, and we've had an update on where we can travel from May 17th, which is next Monday, it's very soon. So in the UK, we seem to be sort of coming out on the other side when it comes to COVID, and hopefully on Monday restrictions can ease for the second time, and the international travel ban will be lifted to a few international countries which were actually announced last week. So we have a sort of traffic light system. So the green list of countries means that if we go there, we won't have to quarantine if we go over and we will only have to take one COVID test. And also I think we do have to be vaccinated. So countries on this list do include Portugal, Gibraltar, Israel, Australia, New Zealand, Iceland and the Faroe Islands. But put in mind that visiting Australia, New Zealand and Singapore will be really restricted restricted at the moment. But all countries apart from Gibraltar, like I said, will require you to be vaccinated with the full two doses. So on to the amber list, and if you want to travel to these destinations, you will have to quarantine for 10 days when you return to the UK. However, if you do take a test on day five of your quarantine and you test negative, you can end your self-isolation early. So destinations in the UK amber list include Greece and Spain, the US and Canada, and a whole range of other destina- destinations, which is quite detrimental to the travel industry especially with greece and spain being on this amber list, as this these are really like major all-inclusive sunny beach holiday destinations for uk tourists and are really popular and the government has actually warned against traveling to these amber list destinations for the time being so there goes the sunny all-inclusive all-you-can-eat-and-drink holidays i love them i've only done one to gran canaria but i I loved it. Then finally, we hit the red list. So these are countries on the list that you just don't want to visit. And these include Brazil, India, South Africa and the United Arab Emirates with I think Turkey and the Maldives have been added to the list from yesterday. And that's due to the rising cases. I remember I said in the news quite a few weeks ago that Turkey did have rising cases so if you did want to travel to these destinations you will have to quarantine in a hotel run by the government for 11 nights when you return back to the uk and this will cost you an extra 1700 pounds plus your holiday fee which is just too expensive so just i would advise not to go to red list countries at the moment especially india because of the rising cases and how many cases and deaths there are each day but i'm glad they are getting help from other countries but this traffic light list for the uk can be updated any time when the situation differs if there's a decline in COVID cases in an area that can be put higher up on the list. But there will be an official review of the traffic light system on the 28th of June. So we will have to see what happens within the next coming weeks with cases. But it will be really great to start traveling abroad again. I know I won't, I probably won't travel abroad this year. But next year, if everything all goes to plan, I will be getting on a plane again. Oh my god, it's been too long. My last flight was December 2019. I did to Dublin. It was only a short flight, but I wish I could just be back on a plane again. So, some other news from the UK government and also the Civil Aviation Authority and they have announced this week that since February of 2021, they have issued 630 fines to travellers for not having the correct paperwork whilst travelling. So at this moment in time, before the restrictions ease next week, no matter what country you travel to, you have to prove you have tested negative for COVID from three days before you depart and you also have to agree to self-isolate before your return to the UK. So this means that a passenger locator form will need to be filled in or else they will face up to a £500 fine. So this can just be a little impact for passengers with £500. It's quite a small fine, but airlines have the responsibility to make sure that passengers have filled in their PLF form and completed it and also have a pre-departure test certificate for COVID. And if passengers don't have this, the airline will be fined £2,000 per passenger and could face an additional £4,000 for not giving passengers the correct information in terms of testing and isolating. And it seems that some airlines have already faced those fines, as like I said, 630 fines have been given out since February because passengers have failed to provide a form. And those £2,000 fines per passenger could be a massive impact on the airline who have lost so much already because of the pandemic. Just sometimes I do really think that it's the passengers responsibility to get these forms filled in. The airlines must, I'm guessing on the website, must give passengers all the information needed when booking. So it's really up to the passengers to make sure that they have the correct certificates and forms filled in. As they are the ones who actually decided to travel during a pandemic. I just think it's mad that people do travel in a pandemic. I know there's our reasons for funerals and seeing family members, but passengers need to realise that they need to have the correct information needed when booking. And it's just, I think it's all the passengers responsibility to make sure that they do have those forms in, but I'm going off on a tangent here. So let me know what you think. Do you think the airline should face fines for passengers not filling in the forms? Or do you think that they should face fines as they're not relaying the correct information? Let me know what you think about that. So some news from IAG this week, and we have mentioned IAG in other episodes recently as they announced their targets for making their airlines Already for the future of sustainable aviation. However, this week the CEO of the IAG group has spoken out that they are all ready to fly and are calling for government action to be made to restart the international travel as soon as possible. So because of COVID, the IAG group have reported that they have reported revenues of I lost myself then 968 million euros for the first time for the first three months of the year, down from 4.6 billion euros for the same period last year. And that's an operating loss of about 1.07 billion, I think. So Louis, let me say the surname, Gallego, let's just put it as that has said that they are doing everything in their power to emerge in a stronger competitive position and are absolutely confident that a safe restart to travel can happen as shown by scientific data. So Galego is hoping to give the government sort of certain demands of measures that will include travel corridors without restrictions between countries with successful vaccination rollouts. So those countries that have had successful vaccinations, and everyone's nearly vaccinated. They need to also have effective testing, such as the UK and the US. They demand for affordable, simple and proportionate testing to replace quarantine and multi-layer testing. So they'd rather people test before and also after the flight instead of people being in quarantine and testing over the next few days. They want well-staffed borders using contactless technology, including e-gates to ensure a safe, smooth flow of people and frictionless travel. And they also want to introduce digital passes for testing and vaccination documentation to facilitate international travel. So instead of you giving in your little slip to say, oh yeah, I've been vaccinated, they want digital actual passes on a phone app or to be printed out just to say, yes, I have been vaccinated. Now, to me, that is a lot of demand for the government to fulfill. I get that they have had a lot of losses, but they need to follow government advice and make sure that they're not risking anything by letting passengers travel to a high risk COVID countries, which could lead to new outbreaks in other countries. I don't know, I think international travel is very risky at the moment, but we will just have to see what happens to the passenger numbers and revenue within the next month when international travel starts to open up. And finally, some positive news from Emirates this week in the United Arab Emirates, who are doing some great things this week. So it was announced that the airline are going to transport medical supplies and aid from the World Health Organization over to India, free of charge. So this comes from India's sudden outbreak of Coronavirus over the last few weeks that has led over to 242,000 deaths, which is just really upsetting to hear about that. So Nabil Sultan, the divisional senior vice president for Emirates and for Emirates Sky Cargo, said that the initial priority would be shipping aid out of Dubai rather than elsewhere from its network while air freight costs stand at record prices sultan said offering free trip shipping to india with medical supplies and aids was really important for the airline as they have flown to that south asian country of india since the carriers founding in 1985 i think it was and he also added that their relationship with india in particular goes a long way and at times like this he thinks that it's absolutely essential that they make sure the essential, essential commodities, I can never say that word, gets into India and to the India people. And they he sort of just put, it's time for us to give back. So it's, I think it's really great to see a massive airline like that sort of give back to their passengers and see that they are helping with the crisis in India and giving back as passenger numbers for Emirates from India have come in at about 5.5 million in the past. And that's about 10% of Emirates overall pa- annual passenger load. And with people finding out, I'm hoping like with all things, I know I said about this Ryanair, and them being sustainable and the IAD group, but I think if people do find out that Emirates are doing such a good deed for the citizens in India, giving them aid and doing this free of charge. I think hopefully, if people find out about this good deed, this could really improve passenger numbers and revenue in the future, especially if the Indian passengers think to choose think once the pandemic hopefully is all over, and they do want to fly to visit people, they may choose to fly with Emirates over other airlines, which could really improve emirates passenger numbers in the long run so i really commend emirates for that so that concludes the news for this week and now on to our discussion of the boeing 747 So now we are on to our topic of discussion and this week it's going to be all about that beautiful aircraft, the Boeing 747. So for those that don't know what the Boeing 747 is, I know aviation enthusiasts will know everything about this aircraft, but the Boeing 747 is a long range wide body aircraft used to transport both passengers and cargo and the aircraft is manufactured by the company Boeing Commercial Planes. So just an overview, the first flight of the Boeing 747 was on the Feb- 9th of February, I think it was 1969. And with the model number of the first flight being the seven four seven one hundred, And the span is 195 feet and eight inches, the length of the aircraft is 231 feet and four inches. And the aircraft has a gross weight of seven hundred and thirty five thousand pounds and a cruising speed of six hundred and forty miles per hour a range of it goes pretty far six thousand miles and a power of four four forty three thousand pound thrust with P&W JT-9D-3 engines, and the aircraft can accommodate 33 attendants and up to 374 to 490 passengers. Imagine that on one aircraft. I know the Airbus A380 can take up to, what what number is it now? About 800? But the Boeing 747 at its time was one of the biggest aircraft in the world. So the aircraft came about in 1963 when the U.S. Air Force was doing some research and they were sort of in need of a bigger, more capable aircraft, especially to transport cargo. So from their research, they were wanting an aircraft that took £180,000 in weight and have a range of about 5000 nautical miles. So the US Air Force was wanting to have four engines on the aircraft, meaning that the new engines would need to be designed for this. So from this request, a few manufacturers came in with proposals. So these included Lockheed, General Dynamics, Douglas, and of course, Boeing. So these proposals from the business were both similar and different. As it was proposed, a door had to be included where the cockpit usually was. All of the companies solved this problem by sort of moving the cockpit above the cargo area. So Douglas had a small pod just forward and above the wing. Lockheed decided to use a long spine running the length of the aircraft with the wingspan passing through it. While Boeing blended the two with a longer pod that ran just behind the nose of the aircraft and just behind the wing as well. So it was then decided from decisions that Boeing would carry the nose door and raised cockpit concept onto the 747 design. So the work started and this aircraft was built and manufactured by 50,000 Boeing employees, which were renamed the Incredibles. These included the construction workers, mechanics, engineers, secretaries and administrators to make the largest civilian I can never say that word either largest civilian airplane in the world and this was to help the travel industry after there was reductions in airfares and also sort of help with the big rise in air passenger traffic which led to actual crowded skies so pilots had to prepare to fly the 747 by attending the training school that boeing had Put in place, so pilots had to sit in a mock-up of the 747 flight deck, and this was built on top of a three-story-high stilts on a moving truck. So the pilots learned how to manoeuvre from such a height by directing the truck driver below him by radio. So the experience of taxiing such a large plane actually acquired a sort of name called Waddles. It's either Waddles or Waddles wagon. And this was named after Jack Wadle, who was the company's chief test pilot. So before the first 747 was fully assembled, testing began on many components and systems. So one important test involved the evacuation of 560 volunteers from a cabin mock-up via the aircraft's emergency slides slash chutes. So the first full-scale evacuation took two and a half minutes instead of the maximum 90 seconds mandated by the Federal Aviation Administration and several volunteers were actually injured in this evacuation. So after this, a further test was made and this was achieved in the 92nd goal, but actually caused more injuries to the volunteers. So the most problematic was the evacuation from the aircraft's upper deck. So instead of using a conventional slide, volunteers' passengers had to escape by using a harness attached to a reel. Oh dear. So on September 30th, my birthday, but back in 1968, I wasn't born till 98. The first 747 was rolled out of the Everett assembly building before the world press and representatives of 26 airlines that had ordered the airliner. So over the following months, preparations were made for the first flight, which took place on, like I said, February the 9th, 1969 with test pilots, Jack Wadell and Brian Weigel. Wadel and Weigel, that's weird, at the controls and Jess Wallach in at the flight engineers station. They have very similar surnames, so I just noticed that. So during later stages of the flight test programme, flutter testing showed that the wings suffered oscillation under certain conditions. So this difficulty was partially solved by reducing the stiffness of the wing components but then also it occurred some problems with the flight test program with the 747's jt19 engines so difficulties included engine stalls caused by rapid rapid throttle movements and distortion of the turbine casings after a short period of service so the problems delayed 747 deliveries for a a few months and up to 20 aircrafts at the everett plant were stranded while awaiting engine installation the program, unfortunately, was then further delayed when one of the five test aircraft suffered really serious damage during a landing attempt at Renton Airport, the site of the Boeing's Renton factory. So the incident happened in December 1969 when a test aircraft was flown to Renton in order to have test equipment removed and the cabin installed. But then luckily there was no further delays and on january 15th of 1970 first lady of the united states pat nixon dedicated pan am's first 747 at washington airport so the first 747 entered service a few days later on january the 22nd 1970 on pan am's new on pan am's new york route which was really popular so the flight had been planned for the evening of january 21st but there was other problems which caused delays but this was due to the engine overheating and it made the original aircraft unusable. So after the aircraft introduction with Pan Am, other airlines started to buy the 747 to sort of stay in, in a competition, if you get what I mean. So they brought 747 to sort of outdo their competitors because they it was such a big aircraft. And they began to put their 747 into service. And Boeing estimated that half of the early 747 sales were to airlines desiring the aircraft's long range instead of its payload capacity. And this includes some airlines included many flag carriers that purchased the 747s due to it being quite posh and prestige. And they weren't really wanting to use it economically. They just wanted to use it for those up class market up up class passengers if you understand what i'm saying and during the 1970s and 80s over 30 regularly scheduled 747s could be seen at john f kennedy airport which is just mad to think so during the development of the boeing 747 which was in the 1960s 1969 to 1970 there were some problems that affected boeing which included the recession so for the year and a half after september 1970 Boeing actually only sold two 747s in the whole world, and these were both to Aer Lingus, the Irish flag carrier. And no 747s were actually sold to an American carrier for almost three years because of the recession. So this was because of the economic problems in the US and also other countries after the 1973 oil crisis. And it's quite good that they didn't buy those aircraft because it also, the oil crisis led to reduced passenger traffic and Airlines did actually find out that they didn't have enough passengers to fly a seven four seven economically, so they replaced these aircraft with smaller and recently introduced McDonnell Douglas DC ten and a Lockheed L one o zero one one tristar trijet. That was a long thing to say and it also came about that american airlines eventually relegated its 747s after such a short amount of times to cargo service as it just wasn't viable to transport passengers anymore and in 1983 they actually exchanged them with panem for smaller aircrafts. and also in the u.s delta airlines another u.s carrier also removed its 747s from service for a few years so just because i think they just manufactured it at the totally wrong time but it came in success in the end they had a few years where 747s weren't really used or weren't being delivered but it came all right in the end so after the initial 747-100 boeing developed the 100b a higher which had a higher maximum takeoff weight and also the dash 100sr which was the short range equivalent of the aircraft, which had higher capacity and also increased the maximum takeoff weight, but also allowed the aircraft to carry more fuel and have a longer range. So from that, the the dash 200 model followed in 1971, I think, and that featured more powerful engines and a higher takeoff weight. And with the 200, there was passenger, freighter and combination passenger and freighter versions of the dash 200. And then after this, the shortened 747SP Special Performance with a longer range was finally developed and entered service in 1976. So the 747 line was further developed with the, you're going to see there's a lot of aircraft from the 747 being developed. So a further 747 was developed with the 747-300 on June 11th, 1980, which was, took up a lot of interest from Swissair. So the 300 series resulted from Boeing studies to increase the seating capacity of the 747. And the first 747-300 was completed in 1983 and it included a stretched upper deck and increased cruise speed and also seating capacity. And then on to 1985, and there was a development of a newer aircraft, the longer range 747-400 and that began developing. And this aircraft had a new glass cockpit, which allowed for a cockpit crew to have only two crew instead of three, which may cause problems. The aircraft also had new engines and lighter construction materials and a redesigned interior. So unfortunately, this was delayed because of insufficient workforce experience and reliance on overtime so because they didn't have much staff they relied on people to do overtime which some people may not want to do i normally take up overtime most of the time if i work but some people don't really like to do that so this contributed to early production problems on the 747-400 but it finally did come into service in 1989 i think it was so at the time, the 747 remained the heaviest commercial aircraft in regular service just until the debut of the Antonov, the AN 124 Ruslan, in I think it was 1982. And this just really surpassed the 747's weight. And they even created an Antonov cargo aircraft as well, which debuted in 1988, I think. And to this day, that's still. Above the A380, that still is the largest aircraft by several measures. I don't know. I've always wanted to see an Antonov aircraft land or take off. I know it has done a few times in the UK and there's always been loads of plane spotters about. I've always wanted to see one. I've seen it all on YouTube and everything, but that would be a dream just to see an Antonov aircraft take off. So back onto Boeing. And Boeing announced the largest 747 minus... Why do I keep saying minus? It's a dash, dash 500X and 600X preliminary designs in 1996. However, interest was not sufficient to launch the programme. And then in 2000, Boeing instead offered the more modest 747X and the 747X stretch derivatives, derivatives and alternatives. And this was an alternative to the Airbus A3XX, which they were planning to develop. However, the 747X was also unable to attract enough interest to enter production. And instead a year later, Boeing switched from the 747X studies to pursue a Sonic cruiser. And then because of not much interest, this was put on hold. And this was put in place of the plan for the 787 Dreamliner. Now this, I'm not sure what happened there. Like, It's weird to think that they didn't get enough interest and then one idea came about, the 787 Dreamliner, and that was it. That was put into place. And if you see it now, they're one of the main aircrafts that fly long haul along with the A350. And they're the newest aircraft to be flying long range and long distances because they don't hold as many passengers, but they're more economically reliable, if you could say that so it's just mad to think all of those ideas and it was the 787 dreamliner that that came about and is really popular today so on to 2004 and boeing announced tentative plans for the 747 advance that were eventually adopted and similar in nature to the 747x that they had developed the stretched 747 advanced used technology from the 787 dreamliner campaign to modernize the design and its systems So, on November 14th, 2005, Boeing announced that it was launching a 747 Advance, as it was going to be renamed the 747-8. So, most orders for this had been for a freighter variant, and on February 8th, 2010, the 747-8 made its maiden flight, and this went to Cargo Lux in 2011. So, the first 747... I got that totally wrong then. So on February 8, 2010, the 747-8 made its first maiden flight. And then there was a first delivery of the dash eight and that went to cargo lots in 2011. There we go. That went right. And then from it being a fighter aircraft, the first 747-8 intercontinental passenger variant of the aircraft was delivered to Lufthansa in May of 2012. And then four years later on to January 2016 and Boeing actually stated it was reducing in its 747-8 production to six a year, beginning in September of the same year, 2016. So also in January 2016, Boeing had announced that it had plans to begin work and modifications on a 747-8 to actually be used for the next Air Force One, that would be operational by 2020, I think it was. So that's come into place this year. So the Air Force One is the aircraft used by the United States president to sort of travel around. So that would have been used by either Donald Trump or it's going to be used now by Joe Biden. So, on July of 2016, in his quarterly report to the Securities and Exchange Commission, Boeing discussed the potential termination of the 747 production, and that was due to just insufficient demand and market for the aircraft, with the developments of the Airbus A350 and also the 787 Dreamliner was doing pretty well. So, with a firm order backlog of 21 aircraft and a production rate of six per year, the programme was calculated to sort of finish by, hopefully be closed by the third quarter of 2019, if it reduced the deliveries of 1,555 aircrafts. The backlog from 21 then stood at 25 aircraft, though several of these orders from airlines were no longer, I think the airlines no longer wanted to take delivery of the 747s. So it has been decided that deliveries are scheduled through till 2022, I think. So we've only got a year left and then on July 2nd, 2020, we're in the middle of the pandemic now, it was reported that Boeing planned to end 747 productions, like we said, in 2022, upon the delivery of the remaining jets on order for freighter companies, UPS and the vulgar DMEPR group, due to low demand. On July 29th, 2020, Boeing actually confirmed that the final 747, like we said, is going to be delivered in 2022 as a result of the current market dynamics. And from the just from the COVID-19 pandemic, it's just not viable because passenger traffic has gone down so much. It's just not viable to fly a 747 unless it is for cargo because that's where the 747 sort of... It's sort of at, at its best at the moment, not with passengers. So it has now decided that as of January 2021, Boeing is going to deliver their last 747s. So they have four 747s going to Atlas Air in 2022. So their last final 747s are going to be delivered to cargo groups, which is where they're needed. So that concludes the history, sort of the everything you need to know about the 747, just in a simpler sort of format. I'm not sure what to think about the 747, I think it's, I I love the aircraft, the way it looks and the way it's sort of, it was sort of the first aircraft that had like a second level to it and people could experience a second deck sort of before the Airbus A380 came in. No, I've only flown the 747 twice, so out to Florida and back to Gatwick on Travel City Direct. So I didn't really get to experience and I was on the lower deck at the back (laughs) in economy. But it was a really great flight. I remember I think I was only about seven or eight, but I would have loved to so much flown the Boeing 747 again. But unfortunately, like we said, in recent weeks, with the impact of COVID, the 747s just, they're just being put out of service and all these deliveries are being cut short, which is just really sad to see it's such a great aircraft that was considered the biggest aircraft in the world at a point, And you felt really privileged to go on it, I guess in the past. I know I wasn't born, I wasn't around when the, when the boat 747 was in service a lot, but it must've been a real privilege to fly that aircraft and it being like a big, massive jumbo jet and everything. So it's just sad just to see a part of massive part of aviation history. Just go. It's, It's very, just very sad to see. Yeah, so that concludes the end of our topic of discussion on the Boeing 747 and also concludes the end of this week's episode. So I hope you enjoyed that little snapshot of the 747 and I'd love to go into other aircraft as well. I'm definitely going to do an episode on the A380. Maybe I might do an episode on the DC-10 because the DC-10's really, I don't know, really interests me. I would love to have flown one of those aircrafts not flown it myself as I'm not a pilot but I mean flew as a passenger so I hope you can join me next week that was just my chair squeaking and (laughs) I broke this chair I I don't know what happened I have this office chair I borrowed off my grandparents and I broke the wheel to it but I'm still using it because I don't want to buy a new one maybe that's what I need to do buy a new office chair but I hope you back to it. I hope you can join me next week for next week's episode. So I'll be giving you the most recent aviation travel news. It'd be great to see maybe next week. I hope there's some news broadcast on our local news about people traveling to airports and international travel from Monday. And also next week's topic of discussion will be discussing the alliance groups. I know I said this a couple of weeks ago. I'd love to do an episode on the Alliance group. So that's next week's episode. So that will be all about the I'm trying to think on the top of my head. So we've got the one world Alliance. We've got the star Alliance. And we've got the sky team. Is it sky team? I've got to Google this. I can't believe I can't remember. I think I've got that right. Let me Google this. airline alliances. Yeah, so we've got the, I've got that totally right. So we've got the Star Alliance, we've got Sky Team and we've got One World. So I'll be going through the history of them, what benefits you get from being a passenger on one of the alliances and also what airlines are in each alliance. So I'm really looking forward to that because I've always wanted to delve more into those alliances. So join me next week and... I'll give you everything you need to know about the three major airline alliances. So I hope you can enjoy me then. And this is going to be me signing off. So this is Up in the Sky. I'm Eben and I hope you all have a great week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Up in the Sky. New episodes will be posted every Wednesday. Follow at Up in the Sky Aviation Podcast on Instagram for information and updates. Hope you all have a great week.